Well, we can jump right in to this story tonight, which basically tells us of Joseph's downward descent. After having been sold into slavery, we read about what ensues here in chapter 39 of Genesis. And the first six verses tell us of Joseph's first step downward, or the first leg of Joseph's downward descent. Having been sold into slavery, one might expect that he would be treated harshly, that he would be treated perhaps inhumanely, that is unhumanly, in a way not befitting a human, that he might be abused, as so many slaves in various cultures throughout human history have been. It turns out in this case actually better than expected. Joseph's not treated as bad as he could be. He's actually treated fairly well. He says to Potiphar's wife later in the chapter, he hasn't held back anything from me. Potiphar is not greater in this house than I am. He's treated as basically a steward of the house, as a household manager. So maybe the way that in a company, there's the guy that actually owns the company, but then there's somebody who's hired, who works for him, who's in a very high position. He's in authority over the rest of the company. He collects a pretty good salary. This is kind of the way it turns out for Joseph. It's actually not nearly as bad as we think it might have been, or as we would consider it might have been. Nevertheless, there's a difference between Joseph's situation and somebody holding simply a high-ranking job in a company. And the difference is this. A guy in a high-ranking job in a company could always quit his job and take another job with better pay or different benefits or whatever in another company. But Joseph is no longer autonomous. He is a slave still. So he can't simply transfer his work output to another master or to another company, so to speak. He has to work for this guy, particularly. He's not free to just up and move to a different state of employment with someone else. So he's gone from autonomy to servitude. He's not free to go back to Canaan, where his father is, where his brothers are. Not that he would necessarily want to, anyway. But neither is he free to explore the land of Egypt. Neither is he free to pursue whatever ventures he might have had in his heart to pursue. He has to work for this guy, particularly. He finds a little niche for himself in the world. It's not ideal, but it's workable. If you go to If you look at this situation of many people in life, they found themselves a little niche. Maybe it's not ideal, but it's workable. They're in a job that's okay. Maybe they'd wish they were doing something else, but it works. They've got a house that they can live in, it's okay. Joseph's in kind of an okay situation here. But we have to recognize that even though it turned out better 
than expected. It's an okay situation. We still have to recognize that it's certainly a downward descent. He's no longer a free man living in the house of his wealthy father, Jacob or Israel. He's now in slavery, in, in forced servitude to this guy Potiphar. So even though it's an okay situation, we still have to acknowledge that it's a downward step. This is the first leg of Joseph's journey downwards in verses 1 to 6. His workable niche in life, this okay situation, Joseph surely would have been somewhat contented with as he was being led by the Ishmaelites into Egypt, certainly fear would have gripped him, apprehension, anxiety about what his future situation would have been. But here he is now, basically a household manager for Potiphar. Surely he would have been contented with this situation, even though it was a downward movement. And it's all jeopardized when Potiphar's wife begins to come on to him. It says, day by day, Um, day after day in verse 10 she spoke to Joseph she's saying lie with me well obviously that's a real cog in the wheel if she wasn't putting Joseph in this difficult situation he likely could have just lived out his days serving Potiphar in this capacity doing okay for himself he's being treated humanely He's not being treated in a below human way, a subhuman way. He's, he has food to eat. In fact, it seems he has ability to go and get whatever he wants. Potiphar says, he hasn't withheld anything from me except you, his wife. So he's being treated pretty good. But this is a, certainly a complicating factor. Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him. You would think about, again, if we were to draw the analogy of a a high-ranking employee in a company, makes a good salary, has a lot of perks, a lot of benefits, but now the owner's wife is trying to seduce him. Obviously, that makes a tricky situation. It makes a complex situation. Eventually, Potiphar's wife brings this situation to a head and catches him by his garment in verse 12. She's attempting as forcefully as possible to have him lie with her. And Joseph has a choice to make here in this situation. He can have a chance to hang on to his relative comfort. This relatively okay, decent situation that he has here in Potiphar's Household, or he can choose to obey God, possibly at the cost of his own life. If he sleeps with her, he's obviously going to have to do it over and over again, as she is smitten with him. This is a situation where it's not sort of a one off thing, but this is probably going to entangle him into some kind of an illicit relationship with Potiphar's wife. It's possible in that scenario that Potiphar's never going to find out and that she's going to keep the secret. 
but obviously his conscience is going to be conflicted about it as he's a worshiper of Yahweh. It's possible, though, that she's going to regret it and that she's going to turn on it and sell him out. Then there's obviously the simply the carnal desire, the fleshly, illicit desire that he may have had or may not have had for Potiphar's wife. We're not told, really, in this situation. Certainly there would at least be that propensity, if I do this, it might be okay. It might work out all right. But it's possible that he might have been attracted to Potiphar's wife and had the sexual desire within further compelling him to this act. Potiphar was a high-ranking official to Pharaoh. And it's it's possible, as is often the case, that high-ranking persons have beautiful spouses. It's possible that Potiphar's wife was actually quite an attractive woman and that Joseph has a situation that a sexually immoral man would actually crave and want. On the flip side, obeying God could cost him his life. In the ancient Near East, several of the law codes specify death as a punishment for adultery. We remember that Joseph had dreams that basically amounted to prophecies that he would reign over his brothers. And of course, how could he reign over his brothers if he was dead? So, if Joseph was still hanging on to those dreams, perhaps he would have had confidence that I'm not going to die if I obey God. But we don't know where Joseph was at, where his head was at at this point. Was, were those dreams in the forefront of his mind? Was he still thinking, in spite of having been sold into slavery here in Egypt, someday I'm going to reign over my brothers? Or had those things taken a back seat? It's possible that in his mind, he was facing a choice of life and death as he contemplated whether or not to sleep with Potiphar's wife. Even if Joseph believed the prophecy and thus believed that he wasn't going to die if he obeyed God, nevertheless, he still would have had to consider that it could cost him a lot of suffering in this life. Life had taught him up to this point that Just because you obey God, just because you're a righteous person, it does not mean that you're not going to suffer. Obviously, he had been betrayed, he'd been thrown in a pit, left to die, and then his brothers changed his mind, changed their minds, and sold him into slavery. Obviously, he knew that the righteous life doesn't preclude suffering. And so, even if he thought to himself, well, in order for the dreams to be fulfilled, I can't die, nevertheless, he still would have had to face up, but I can suffer. What is it going to cost me in this situation? Here's his choice. Here's the choice that is before him. Hang on to a chance at relative comfort or suffer and possibly even die for obeying God. We might gloss over this choice as if it's 
easy. As if it's just a superficial matter. Well, obviously, Joseph, obey God. It's the right thing to do, clearly. And God has promised that you're going to come out all right in the end anyway. But consider, even in your own life, does simply knowing the right thing to do always get you through decisions correctly? Well, obviously, you know the commandments. Just do it. Does that work for you? Just because you know the right thing to do, does it become an easy decision automatically for you simply because you know God's law? Does your belief in God's promises that everything's going to turn out alright for you in the end, Christian, does that get you through? You know, you know you're going to reign with Christ, you know you're going to be resurrected, you know He's going to raise your body. Does your belief in those promises make decisions, moral decisions, easy for you? Because you go, yeah, it's obvious. Here's God's law and here's His promises, so I should do the right thing. I think we need to recognize and appreciate the difficulty that Joseph is in here. Yes, God's law is very clear. Yes, Joseph has promises that things are going to turn out alright for him in the end, just as we know God's law and we have promises that it's going to turn out all right for us in the end. Just because we know these things, it doesn't mean that these moral decisions that we face are going to be easy for us. I don't want to get swarmed either. (laughs) You understand, Joseph was actually in, actually in a difficult situation. Just because the moral decision in front of him was clear. Just because he had promises that it was going to turn out alright for him in the end. It doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been a struggle for him to make this decision. It doesn't mean that it wasn't a hard decision for him. Joseph was just a man. Like any of us. Just a person. Just a human. Even though obviously the circumstances and the situation may not be as relatable to the women in our midst. Nevertheless, Joseph was of like nature with you, to you. Joseph was facing a moral decision where he knew the right thing to do. And he had promises to the effect that it would all turn out all right for him in the end. And yet, nevertheless, he came to this decision point where it was really going to cost him something to obey God. We come very often to similar decision points in our life where obeying God is really going to cost us something. And just because we know the right thing to do, just because we have promises to the effect that it's going to turn out all right for us in the end, it doesn't make it easy for us. Joseph chooses further descent. Joseph chooses another step downward. Joseph chooses another leg of a downward-oriented journey. He is consciously choosing that. Joseph didn't choose in the first place the first leg of his downward descent. 
against his will, he was cast into that pit. And against his will, he was sold into slavery. But Joseph is choosing, consciously now, to go further downward. He's consciously choosing inevitable imprisonment or death. A beating, perhaps. He's choosing these sorts of things consciously over disobedience to God. Obviously, this is commendable. What are we to learn from this? There are two applications that we should make here. One is simply be like Joseph. Be like Joseph. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6 tells an Old Testament story and it says these things happened as examples to us. As an example to us. The Old Testament was written partially to be an, to give stories which are examples to us. To pr- set characters before our eyes who are examples to us. Good or bad. And certainly here we see a wonderful example of someone choosing obedience to God in a difficult moral dilemma at cost to himself. We see a godly man here in Joseph who says, how can I do such a thing and sin against God? Yes, he gives the human reason for it. It wouldn't be right. Look at how Potiphar trusts me. Look at how he's entrusted his affairs to me. It wouldn't be right to repay him like this. He gives that horizontal, human-facing reason. But he also says, how could I do such a thing, such wickedness, and sin against God? Brothers and sisters, this ought to be the paradigm within which we operate, within which we make our moral decisions. Not simply what's happening at the horizontal level. Not simply how could I repay my employer like this after all that they've done for me. Not simply how could I treat my my brother or my friend or my business partner like this after all they've done for me. Not simply that. Because sometimes, frankly, on a horizontal level, we might be justified in the eyes of others to repay evil with evil. We need more than just horizontal reasons for doing good because those won't hold us up when there are no horizontal reasons. We need that deeper motivation which accompanies true godliness. How can I do such wickedness and sin against God? When nobody's looking When nobody knows when you could do something in secret. What do you think? Do you think merely of the horizontal reasons? Or is God present in your mind? How could I do such wickedness and sin against God? We come to forks in the road on this journey of life. Decision points. Some of them smaller Some of them bigger. 
where we have to make a choice. What are you prepared to lose in obedience to God? Comfort? Are you prepared to give up a little sleep in obedience to God? Or a lot of sleep in obedience to God? Are you willing to allow yourself to be stressed, to become stressed out in obedience to God? Or is comfort your driving impulse? Sometimes the path of obedience leads us straight into stress. Sometimes it makes our lives more stressful to obey God. People are always telling you in this day and age, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. God wants you to be comfortable. God wants you to live the abundant life. God wants you to be blessed. Rightly nuanced, rightly understood, some of these things are true. But listen, sometimes obedience to God leads you straight into stress. Because sometimes it means persevering in love towards a difficult person. Making room for them, making space for them in your life, in your prayers, in your heart, in your conversation. Sometimes the path of obedience to God means less sleep. Whether it be staying up late to be with someone, getting up in the middle of the night to go to someone, getting up early to do the same, to care for little children even, to be a good mom, to be a good dad, or simply making space, making time to bring your own heart before God in prayer, in consideration of His Word, to be nourished. Sometimes in a busy season of life, what godliness looks like is choosing less sleep in order that you might walk with God through that season. Are you willing to lose respect? Or is saving face your primary driver? Your primary motivation? What if your friends think you're stupid? Your coworkers, your neighbors? What if they think you're anti-intellectual? What if they call you irrational for believing in God? What if they call you just dumb, simple-minded? Are you willing to lose face? Speak up for Christ and His gospel. Christ is not afraid to own His people. But to our shame, sometimes we're afraid to own Him. I was listening to somebody recently 
online spout a whole bunch of pantheistic, panentheistic drivel about how we're all part of one consciousness and we're all operating on the same frequency or we're different frequencies or something like this. We're different vibrations of one frequency. I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand what he was saying. To be honest, it didn't make sense to me. And it sounds like a bunch of gibberish to me. But I suspect probably what I believe might sound like a bunch of gibberish to him. If we were to have that conversation, and I, am I willing to just say, listen, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Maybe it makes sense to you, but it doesn't make sense to me. And I'm just happy to just stand alone on the B-I-B-L-E. <laughs> Simple as that might be. Simple as that might sound. Right? Or the naturalists talking about you know how science has proved this and that, the Big Bang and all this. Whatever. Simple enough to me to understand that if there's an effect, there has to be a cause. And if something is created, there must be a creator. Maybe that sounds too simple for some intellectual types. That's fine. Again, I'll just stand alone on the BIPLE. Call me simple-minded. Call me anti-intellectual. Call me whatever you want. But what's driving us? You understand? Sometimes we come to these points where just speaking up, putting ourselves out there, obeying God. Even our brother mentioned in preaching on the parable of the unforgiving servant a number of months ago about how even the way that we forgive looks stupid in the eyes of the world. Are you willing to be thought of as soft, as naive? Are you willing for people to think you're not a tough guy? Are you willing for people to think that they can mess with you and get away with it? Sometimes obedience to God costs us respect in the eyes of the world. Are you willing to lose your job? Joseph was about to lose more than his job in this situation. I'm sure he knew it. As he spurned such an obvious advance and leaves his coat with Potiphar's wife. I'm sure he knew that was going to cost him something. At least his job. Are you willing to just let it all go and just walk out? Sometimes we come to ethical decisions in terms of carrying out our actual job, whatever, of whatever sort, altering the books, dealing unjustly, unfairly with clients, whatever, you know how it is. In the medical world, doctors and nurses are increasingly, with increasing frequency, being put into difficult ethical situations. Are you willing to just lose it all? Just walk off? Listen. You do what you want with me, but I can't do this wickedness and sin against God. 
we have to consider that most extreme example. And if we settle that, the lesser ones like foregoing a promotion. I can't take that promotion because of what it's going to do, say, to my family's religious life. In terms of maybe how it's going to affect me on Sundays. Or in terms of maybe how it's going to impact our ability to, my ability to lead my family in worship. Or whatever, right? Whatever it looks like. Are you willing to forego a promotion? To choose not to take a job that's better in the eyes of the world because it's not better in the eyes of God. Are you willing to lose your family? Possibly literally lose them. Some families in other religions will cast you away, treat you as if you're dead to them. If you profess Christ, if you confess Christ. Some of you may remember when my dad was here, he was sharing a couple of stories to that effect of guys he knew. In fact, in one case, the brother at his dad's behest was actually trying to kill his brother because he'd come to faith in Christ. They viewed that as such a shame to their family that they figured they better off him. Are you willing to lose your family? What about distance though? What about make decisions that just seem weird, strange in their eyes? For the sake of obedience to God. Family, I think, seems to be an idolatry that is prevalent amongst Christians. I think probably because family is a good thing. And it's a gift from God. And we can see that it's good. And we can see that it's important. And it's wholesome and so on and so forth. But a lot of us are willing to really bend on biblical things to keep our families happy, you know. The Sabbath issue is a big one. People prioritize being at family get-togethers over being with God's people worshiping as is prescribed in the scriptures. That's a big one. But issues like how we raise our children, issues like practicing family worship even when your family's over and maybe they're not believers or maybe they just think that you're a little bit over-enthusiastic. Are you willing to put a little bit of distance? Let a little bit of distance come between you and your family. Out of obedience for God. We don't have to be cantankerous or obnoxious, but we could just tell our families, listen, this is how we understand the scriptures. We have to obey God rather than men. This is what we believe and this is what we're going to do. Even if that seems a little strange to you. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What are you prepared to lose in obedience to God? We have to be prepared, as I think Joseph probably would have had to prepare himself, even for that ultimate cost, to give our lives. And if it holds true in the most extreme case, we have to be prepared to be consistent with that in all lesser things. We have to be prepared. To forego comfort, respect, financial stability, standard of living, family relationships, friendships, 
whatever, in obedience to God. So certainly, Joseph's example here, Joseph's conduct here is exemplary. But again, Joseph is prefiguring another. Be like Joseph, yes. Follow Joseph, yes. If I might borrow the Apostle's phrase, be like Joseph, follow Joseph as he follows Christ. For we see in Christ Jesus two legs of downward movement, two steps of downward movement. First is the incarnation. What an incredible thing that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Have you thought much on the incarnation? It's incredible to think that God walked among us. One of the things that really impressed my dad when he went to Israel a number of years ago was to stand in some of the places that you read about. And to think, wow, the Son of God walked here. That God should come to us at all is a downward descent. If Jesus came merely as a teacher, it would be a downward descent. It would be beneath Him to take on flesh and come simply to teach us, simply to instruct us, simply to be like another Moses who comes down with laws and instructions and rules in his hands. That would be in itself a downward descent. But we read in Philippians 2 that not only did Jesus make the first leg of that downward journey. But we read that being found in human form, he humbled himself implicitly further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this statement comes in the context of an imperative. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself two steps downward, not only becoming one of us, but further, further downward, being obedient even to the point of death. Joseph is here again prefiguring another who descended down and down again in obedience to God, whatever it might cost him. Jesus reckoned with the cost and consciously chose to pay it rather than disobey his father. He was obedient to the point of death. So be like Joseph. Follow Joseph, but follow Joseph as he follows Christ. 
our ultimate example. And then, not just be like Christ, but trust in Christ. Jesus does give us an example. We are to follow His example. But we're not merely to follow His example. Jesus is not just an example, but a Savior. As our brother mentioned earlier in the service. In Jesus' downward descent, first to earth and then further to the cross, Jesus didn't merely show us how we ought to live. But He was doing that for us. He was doing that even for Joseph, you know. Because Joseph himself, though he prefigured another, especially in Genesis 39, didn't his whole life through obey God to the point of death? Joseph wasn't a spotless lamb. Only Jesus is that. Jesus obeyed to the point of death always ultimately for our sake even for Joseph's sake Joseph is like a signpost that points us towards another Christ Christ Jesus his descent and then his eventual ascent which we'll get to his exaltation is a type uh, foreshadowing of Christ who is to come Joseph's narrative as all the other portions of scripture point us towards Christ and this book is a unified whole that tells us look to Jesus so not only should we follow Joseph not only should we follow Joseph as he follows Christ but we should trust in Christ this section of Joseph's story his descent his humility his obedience at any cost prefigures Jesus' obedience to death on the cross. And we see actually in the end of Genesis 39 we see that in prison where his master put him Joseph again does excellent work. So we see in Joseph's life one who descends lower and lower and does good work well down there. This is to be compared with Christ who descends to the dead. And as he does, Isaiah 53 tells us, the will of the Lord prospers in his hand just as Joseph goes down into Potiphar's house down into Egypt as verse 1 says and then Joseph does excellent work in Potiphar's house we read of that in verses 5 and 6 and then as Joseph goes down further into the prison Joseph again does excellent work. And verses 22 and 23 speak to that. So Christ goes down. And remember, 
while his brothers have left him for dead. Joseph has gone down, down, down. His work is excellent. And he's about to be exalted. He's about to ascend. So it is with Christ. His brothers, those many sons whom he is intending to bring to glory, have left him for dead. And he goes down, down, down. But his work is excellent. He appears before the Father, pleading not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own. And the will of the Lord, namely, to bring many sons to glory, prospers in his hand through his downward descent. Through the incarnation and through the cross, the will of the Lord prospers in his hand. Jesus does excellent work well down there. And in due time, he's exalted. He ascends. As in due time, Joseph will be also. But for now, let us consider the humility of our Savior. Let's dwell there a little while before we rush too quickly to the exaltation and to the ascension. And consider Christ's obedience to the point of death, prefigured here by Joseph. Let us seek to imitate him, to be like Joseph as he is like Christ, to imitate Jesus. And let us trust him because of our inevitable failures to always imitate Him as we ought. Let us consider the humility of Jesus, seeking to imitate and to trust in His downward descent and the work He did well done there.